Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the cure for your nightmares. They say that when you have nightmares about houses, it means you're dealing with your internal emotional landscape. If you dream about houses with cracks, <laughs> you're really in deep doo-doo. I bet our editor, Wendy Wagner, has some very interesting nightmares. So let's kick off the hopefully more hopeful new year with a house story. The story is called Dick Pig. Yes, you heard me correctly. This is Nightmare Magazine, remember? The story is written by Ian Munishwa, who is a Boston-based writer and teacher. His short fiction is sold to venues such as Clark's World, Strange Horizons, and Black Static, and has been selected for year's best weird fiction and the year's best dark fantasy and horror. He has taught writing in the Transitional Year program at Brandeis University, in the Experimental College at Tufts University, and in Clarion West's online workshops. You can find out more about his work at ianmanishwar.com. This story is read by the devastatingly talented husband and wife duo, John Allen Nelson and Justine Eyre. John is an actor, narrator, and screenwriter known for his many roles on TV series such as 24, some eye candy episodes of Baywatch, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. His stunning wife, Justine Eyre, once again graces us with her vocal presence. Justine has narrated thousands and thousands and millions of audiobooks and has appeared in many films and TV series, including Mad Men, Two and a Half Men, and just this last year in the feature Desperate Widows. Note, if you ever bump into John and Justine on the red carpet or at a cocktail party, remember those? A word of advice. Don't stand next to them, or especially have your photo taken with them. Besides being amazing human beings and brilliant, intelligent actors, they are two of the most stunning physical specimens of humans I have ever seen. The comparison between you and them will not be pretty. So, sit back in your little house, and let's do a little looky-looing with Dick Pig by Ian Munishwa. Ass o'clock in the morning, and it's blackout. Black, black. The kind of black you only get in these miserable middle-of-nowhere places. No, middle-of-nowhere is too generous. This is past that, right at the line where nowhere becomes miles of uncharted forest, thick with months of snow, and screaming with wolves, and whatever other ungodly feral things make noise when everything decent in the world is asleep. It's one of those animals that drags me awake, yowling from the forest's edge, 
shrieking at me like I owe it money or stepped on its child. I lurch out of bed, but when my feet hit the floorboards, there's no howling, no sound, nothing, like it was never even there. Fuck this wolf. Fuck this whole entire place. The floor is freezing, just one long ice rink from here to the carpet in the hall. The house doesn't have central heating. Of course it doesn't. There's only a wood stove in the living room, and fuck if I know how to use a wood stove. I got it working with the logs I found out back, but it choked and died twenty minutes later, and by then I'd already cocooned myself in these quilts that still reek of mothballs. As you may have surmised, I don't own this house. Strictly speaking, no one does. It belonged to my Aunt Norma, bless her, before she fell and broke her hip, and the handyman found her weeks later, quite dead in her floral print nightgown, frozen to the upstairs hallway, the hallway right outside this door. I try not to think about that. I pull my feet off the floor and tuck them back under Norma's smelly quilts. My phone's beside my pillow, half-charged, and there's a push notification on the otherwise darkened screen. I begin to swipe it away, but it's a grinder message from someone called Hung Daddy. Well, it might be cold and I might be tired, but who am I to reject the advances of a Hung Daddy? I tap on his faceless profile. Hey, Dick Pig. He's called me by my profile name. How personal. How touching. As soon as I've read the greeting, a picture appears in the chat. It's a grainy, colorless photo of a naked man seated on a stool. His head is cropped out of the frame, but the rest of his mountainous body is visible, from the hairless shoulders down to his muscled legs spread open. His cock hangs over the edge of the stool, halfway hard, lolling to one side with its own weight. One of the man's hands rests on his thick, furred thigh. The other is raised and extends out of the picture, reaching for something just out of view. I double-tap on the image, zoom in. The resolution is god-awful. This pic could only have been taken on a flip phone, but even through the pixelation, the intensity of his grip is obvious. The muscles are knotted, and his skin pulls so tight that the hollow of his elbow has become a deep, blurry pit. I don't know what's in that hand, but whatever it is, it's being crushed, punished. I am, predictably, quite hard now. Hey, I type, one-handed. What's up? I am always awake. The reply appears immediately, but I don't question the speed. I've slid back into bed and unbuttoned the jeans I went to sleep in. Yes, I write, not really caring about spelling, because at this stage we both know where this conversation is going. What's got you up, Daddy? Another image appears in the chat instantly. It's actually not a different picture at all, I realize, but the same one taken from a different angle. This time, it's as if the photographer is sprawled on their back, lying between the man's feet. Most of the body is out of focus. 
His cock and balls are a blur, the coarse hair curling across his stomach reduced to shadow. But I don't really care, because I'm halfway to coming and already feel the need for sleep eclipsing my horniness. Fuck, I type, moving this interaction right along. Please destroy me with that dick. There is, for the first time in the conversation, a pause. And then, you crave destruction? I scroll back up to the first pick. I sure do. Yes, sir, wreck my hole. You want to be destroyed, wrecked, annihilated. I stop jacking myself, but keep my hand on my dick. Hung Daddy's dirty talk needs some work, but I'll give him a pass. Twenty more seconds of this Dom Daddy shtick, and I'll be cleaning myself up, ghosting him and getting to sleep. The natural order of the gay universe. Yeah, I type. I want you to pin me down and make me beg. Hung Daddy's last message comes through in one giant text block, like he's composed the whole thing already and has been waiting to send it. I will destroy you. I will destroy every part of you. I will destroy until there is nothing left in you but your desire for nothingness, and I will destroy even that. I will destroy you. I will destroy. And it just fucking ends like that. Mid-sentence. Jesus. I back out of the chat and return to Hung Daddy's profile. Before I block him, I take a screenshot of the profile image. Hung Daddy, online now, 15 miles away. When I block him, his image disappears from the grid of nearby profiles. I shut off my phone. That's quite enough grinder for tonight, thanks. The exposed skin between my thighs has gone clammy, and I'm aware of how cold I am, how cold this whole damned house is at night. I pull my pants back up, tuck my erection away. For a moment, the house is dead, and it's just me and the sound of my own post-masturbatory breathing. I tell myself to ignore the phone screen right beside my pillow, to just close my eyes. There's so much left to do tomorrow, and I need to clear out of here before the realtor arrives in the afternoon. I need to sleep. But then the howling starts up again. This time, it's not just one wolf, but a pack of them seething through the forest, shrieking at the cold. A goddamn symphony the whole night long. In the morning, I find myself at the kitchen table, drinking a finger of scotch out of a coffee mug, staring absent-mindedly at the crack. The crack was the sole topic of Norma's correspondence with the rest of the family through the last years of her life. It's a jagged line that runs the height of the wall separating the kitchen from the dining room. It's so thin, it looks like it's been drawn on with a pencil. The crack started worming its way into Norma's calls maybe three years ago. She would make the occasional reference to the house falling down around her, but then play this off as tongue-in-cheek melodrama. As her calls grew more frequent, though, the levity left her voice. 
You must do something about it, she would warble into the landline. It hasn't stopped growing. Good Lord in heaven, just look at it. It's like the Panama Canal. You wouldn't know this since you never visit, but this wall, she'd suck in her breath here, pause for a fact, is a load-bearing wall. The monthly guilt trips became intolerable, so I paid a handyman in her vicinity to trek out to the house and assess the situation. He confirmed that there was no issue, that the dreaded crack was little more than the house shifting and resettling after an especially brutal winter. That's when I started letting Norma's calls go to voicemail. I know, I know, I'm making her sound petulant and demanding. It's unfair of me. We can't judge the dead only by the final paranoid moments of their life. In truth, there were many things I admired about my aunt. She was a vintage eccentric. She spoke in an accent shared by no one else in my family, a half-baked homage to Catherine Hepburn that lapsed back toward her Gravesend roots more often than she probably realized. She was also the first adult in my family I came out to, and goddamn if I don't remember the look that ignited in her eye as she pulled me close and said, I always suspected that you were so, my dear. Let me tell you about Cousin Alexander. He was the same way as you, and you wouldn't believe where he took me that summer we visited Berlin. Unfortunately, I was the only one who knew this side of my aunt. The rest of my family thought that Norma, in her dotage, was losing touch with reality. They made her perform the necessary rituals. Go see this, Dr. Auntie. Go get those tests done. Then go talk to this lawyer and, you know, while you're at it, why don't you draw up a will? That was what they really cared about, making sure her fortune made it into the right hands when she died. Their hands. Because that's my family for you. Vultures, the lot of them. Hungry fucking vultures bearing down on the old woman before she'd passed, trying to suffocate her with the weight of their lousy vulture bodies. My family couldn't understand that Norma was never in touch with reality. She'd been fleeing it for decades, first by entombing herself in this remote colonial, and then by filling it with curiosities and hidden secrets, building a labyrinth in which reality, that persistent bastard, could never find her. It's morning, but somehow still only half-light outside. As I hunch over the dining-room table, considering my scotch, my breath leaves my mouth in steamy wisps. They taunt me. I find a fur-collared coat and an old Cossack hat in Norma's bedroom, but no amount of animal fur seems to keep the chill away. Norma used to say that when you're this far north, winter tilts the land away from the sun and toward an in-between place. She told me this when I was very young, and I still remember the way she angled her teacup as she described the tilting world, how the brown liquid spilled from the brim and pooled in the saucer. I asked her what we were in between and how we could get back, but she only brought the saucer to her lips, sucked it dry, and then ran her tongue around the bottom of the cup. I was a little older when I realized she probably wasn't drinking tea. 
I uncork the Lagavulin and splash a sensible pour into my emptied mug. Here's to you, Auntie Norma. Here's to your fully stocked cabinet of mediocre whiskey. Here's to the secret you buried in this house. My phone buzzes in my pocket, just once. I don't remember having turned it on after the grinder conversation, but I must have at some point in the night. The cold kept me from really falling asleep. I was up in fits and starts, bleary and pissed off. There's a single notification on the screen. My mouth sours when I see the sender's name. I open Hung Daddy's latest message. He must have created a new account to find me again. This happens sometimes with guys who can't take a hint. It's annoying, but fixable. If you block and ignore them enough times, they do eventually disappear. Where did you go? What a fucking creep. I swipe back to Hung Daddy's profile and am reaching my thumb toward the almighty block button when I notice that the profile has changed. The name and picture are the same, but his distance no longer reads 15 miles. It's now one mile. Aunt Norma doesn't have neighbors. In fact, I was a little surprised that there was someone on Grinder who was only 15 miles away. The nearest city, and I use the word city quite loosely here, is a snowbound hamlet with a train station and a Kinko's some 60 miles south. 15 miles would put Hung Daddy squarely in the middle of no man's land. One mile puts him within walking distance. I click on the chat bubble out of habit before I'd considered whether or not I should. I move my thumb to close the app, but then I see what he's written. I stare at the screen long enough that it goes dark. I can tell you where to look. My eyes keep sliding over those words. Again. 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 And then it hits me like an ice cube sucked down my windpipe. I am being catfished. The only way Hung Daddy could know that I am looking for something is if he knows there is something worth looking for. And the only way he could know that is if he was privy to Norma's will. The opening of Norma's will was the closest my family has ever come to holding a reunion. The extended viper's nest of Caldwell's shuffled into that lawyer's office, all of them dour and pale in their funereal get-ups, looking like characters in an Edward Gorey sketch. When the lawyer announced that Norma had left her entire estate to a nearby private school, most of them left in an entitled rage. But I stayed for the whole reading, for the line at the very end when Norma addressed me directly. To Edwin, I cherish all those childhood summers you spent in my house, all those marvelous secrets that passed between us, how I wish there were still one more to share. I would have left you the house, but alas, it is falling into ruin and would only have been a burden in its old age. To those unfamiliar with Norma, that might just seem like a slightly passive-aggressive parting message, but I knew her too well not to see the references buried in those words. Norma worked in riddles. In her mind, it was almost gauche to say exactly what she meant. One line played itself over and over for me. 
how I wish there was still one more to share. Between this and the references to the house, one thing became clear to me that afternoon. Norma left something in this house for me to find. Knowing her, it would be something so valued it couldn't be discussed openly. Unfortunately, I wasn't the only one who stayed for the end of the reading. My siblings are relentless and hungry, and it seems one of them wants what Norma left me. This plan, trying to spook me out of the house using a hookup app, it's original, I'll give them that. It's probably my youngest brother, Barty. He's a twisted little shit. Or, no, maybe it's Violet. Fucking Violet. She's the only one who would know my taste in men. This realization is in its own way a comfort. Hung Daddy now has a face, and it is the face of one of my ne'er-do-well relatives skulking in the forest, sending grainy dick pics and cryptic sexual advances. This is something I can deal with. I am, after all, well-practiced at enraging my family. I throw back the dregs of the Lagavulin, set my cup down, and get up from the table. Norma's house key is with the realtor, but the spare key, the one she hid in the hollow of that dead oak out back, that one is safely in my pocket. I inventory the downstairs, checking the locks on the windows and trying all the doorknobs. Most of the windows, blessedly, were painted shut years ago, but this house has so many goddamn doors. The front door and the back porch's screen door, the basement door and the hatch on the root cellar, the small warp door in the pantry that opens into the woodshed, and finally, the door in the library's outside-facing wall that never opens. Since I spent yesterday creeping through every crawl space, turning out every dresser, and peering under all of the carpets, I make an efficient survey of the house. The doors are locked up tight. Breathless from all of this jogging, I settle into the library's ratty love seat and take out my phone. Hung Daddy, it feels perverse to refer to a family member this way, but they brought this on themselves, has not sent any additional messages. I type out a response, delete it, and start again. You going to tell me where to look, or would you rather come and show me? I know you're not used to the cold. You must open the door under the stairs. He's as prompt as ever. The house doesn't have all that many staircases. There are stairs in the front hall leading to the second floor. They're the ones going to the cellar. And if we're being pedantic about things, I suppose there's also the attic's pull-down ladder. In the past 24 hours, I have been up and down these staircases so many times, I have the squeal of each tread memorized. The staircases don't have doors, I reply. At this point, the whole cat-and-mouse charade is starting to feel pretty fucking ridiculous. Whichever one of my grifting relatives is behind Hung Daddy, they are cold and miserable outside, making themselves suffer just to frighten me. The whole thing is petty and obnoxious. And you know what? They should know better if they think I'm going to let them in when they decide to give up the ruse. They should know that no one in the family, not even Violet, is pettier than I am. I'm drafting another pithy response when a third picture comes through. This was taken with the same camera as Hung Daddy's others, 
It's all staticky, washed-out sepia, but it's not an image of a person. It's the inside of the house. The photographer took this standing in the front hall that extends into the dining room. The stairs to the second floor run up one of the walls in the entryway, and the photographer has focused on that bare, triangular piece of the wall underneath the stairs. So, Hung Daddy has been here before. This isn't surprising. Most of Norma's relatives came here after the funeral for an afternoon of backbiting and store-bought crudité. There would have been ample time to take pictures. In fact, I'd be surprised if Barty hadn't slunk around, making an inventory of Auntie's valuables while the rest of us nibbled our baby carrots. No, the surprise in this photo is that there is a door under the stairs. It's difficult to make out at first. The wall is decorated with rectangular moldings, and the doorframe has been camouflaged to look like one of them. It's painted the same hideous taupe as every other wall in this house, and it doesn't seem to have a knob, but it's there all right, clear as day. How could I have missed this? As I haul myself up from the couch and debate how to shimmy this door open, one more detail in the photo catches me. I wouldn't have noticed it at all if I hadn't zoomed in a bit, and even now I'm not entirely sure what I'm looking at. The picture is taken at a slight angle, so it captures not only the wall, but also the length of the very narrow front hallway. A corner of the dining room is visible at the very end of the hall, and most of this corner is taken up by the lower half of Norma's farmhouse table. There's an object sitting at the edge of the table, a pixelated, shadowy thing. I bring the phone screen closer and closer to my face, it's just about touching my nose when I realize that I'm looking at the coffee cup sitting right where I left it 20 minutes ago. I close grinder and stand very still. My heart's bolting against my chest like a hunted rabbit, and all I can think is that if I stand very still, whoever is in this house won't hear me, won't know where I am. This thought is so stupid it hurts. I have, after all, spent the morning slamming every door I could find, but I can't even think about moving right now. The clock ticking on the mantel across the room is so fucking loud. I want to tell it to shut up, to just shut up for one minute, because it's covering the creaking sounds of the intruder crawling across the floorboards, the shuttering of the camera lens as it captures things I can't see until they're shown to me. I allow myself a breath. It's unbearably loud, sucking all that air in, but I need to think this through. When I was a child, I used to keep a jewelry collection, specifically a collection of my mother's jewelry. I would sneak into her room while she napped and pilfer one earring from her nightstand. She would think she had lost an earring, so she'd toss its now worthless mate. After rifling through the trash, I would end up with both earrings, and my mother was none the wiser. It was a perfect system, right up until Barty and Violet found my stash. My beloved siblings didn't go to our mother with the evidence of my crimes. That wouldn't have been cruel enough. Instead, over the course of the next four years, they slowly re-gifted all of the earrings back to my mother. 
Every Christmas, every birthday, every Mother's Day, I watched as my months of meticulously planned larceny were slowly undone and my siblings were praised for their discerning taste. Our dear mother, so wealthy, so oblivious, never caught the grift. I've had enough of Barty and Violet. We are not children anymore, and I won't play their goddamn games. I pull the Cossack hat tight around my ears and take a step forward. The squeak of my boot is a small rebellion. First things first, I delete Grinder. After 36 hours, my phone's battery is nearly gone, and it's not like I'm getting any useful information out of Hung Daddy. I stride back through the living room, telling myself with every boot squeak that I'm in control here, that I'm choosing to let them know I'm not afraid. And I come to the front hall. This room connects all three floors, and so when I speak, I know that whoever is inside can hear me. I think we both know what's going on here, I call, hating how my voice cracks halfway through the sentence. So come on out, and we can talk about this like adults. Now, of course, the house goes entirely quiet. I can't even hear the clock in the living room anymore. And this makes me wonder about all of the other hidden noises I'm missing. Maybe Hung Daddy is pacing the length of the attic, but it's too far away for me to hear the weight of his footfalls. Maybe he's hiding behind the brocade curtains in the drawing room, giggling to himself as he drafts another message. Or maybe he's... My gaze snaps over to that horrible taupe door under the stairs. There it is, as advertised. Even before I've stepped across the room, I see where the door's hinges disrupt the clean lines of the moldings. I see how the grain of wood breaks from the wall's smooth plaster. What are you going to do when I open this? I run my finger across the door's face, over the place where the handle should be. I don't know it for a fact until I say it out loud, but there it is for everyone to know. I am going to open this door. You gonna lock me in and steal Norma's shit for yourself? What's the plan, friend? What do you want with me? A wind swells outside, kicking up pinpricks of ice that rasp against the windows. The house settles back to silence. Now that I know I want to open this door, there's no turning back. The question is, how do I open it without playing into Hung Daddy's chicanery? Last night, when I went to the woodshed for kindling, I saw a mallet on the workbench out there. I jogged through the pantry, braced myself against the bite of winter that greets me in the uninsulated shed, and carried that mallet back inside. Its wooden shaft is so fucking cold in my hands, but it's a good kind of cold, a frigid, heavy reminder that I am in control of what I do next. I smack the butt of the mallet against the upper right-hand corner, and the door judders in its frame. It opens more easily than it should, coming just far enough out from the wall that I can press my numb fingertips against its width and prise it open. The hinges squeal with disuse, and I hate them for it. 
all of that unnecessary sound. The space beneath the stairs is a closet. I almost laugh at the sheer mundanity of it. The line of hats and coats hanging from hooks, a collection of furs draped across the back wall, including a mink stole with little Weasley feet and black marbles for eyes. I turn my phone's flashlight into the dusty interior before I step over the threshold. It's a tiny closet, barely enough room to stand up in. I rifle through Aunt Norma's old coats, slipping my hands into their pockets. Everything smells powerfully of mothballs. I don't know what Hung Daddy expected I would find in here, but it's all pretty disappointing as far as secret rooms go. The coats are threadbare, their pockets empty. Even the mink stole is too washed out and mangy to be worth anything. The phone vibrates in my hand, and the movement is so unwelcome that it goes clattering to the ground. Even though it's frigid in here, my palms are sweaty. As I bend down and grope for my traitorous phone, bits of grainy refuse stick to my hands. I'm still crouched in the darkness when the screen lights up right in front of me, and I see the push notification. My chest tightens. I know, I know, I deleted that app not half an hour ago. This isn't funny anymore, I say through the open door to the empty hall. I consider for a moment tacking Barty or Violet onto the end of that sentence. I don't, though, because neither of them is in this house with me. I would feel a lot better if they were. I open the app that shouldn't be there. Above you. It occurs to me, as I sit on the moldering floorboards and stare out into the hall, that I don't have to look up. I can get up right now and walk out the front door. My car is still out there. The battery probably died during the night, but that's not what's keeping me here. I can walk if I have to. I've hitchhiked before. The only reasonable thing to do is get off this property and go south, back to a place where I understand how the world works. But I don't. Here's the thing I haven't told you, but maybe you've known it all along. There's a want inside me I don't understand. Why does a child steal something as useless as an earring? I used to think it was for the thrill of theft itself and for the pleasure of possessing something beautiful. But maybe I craved what would have come if my siblings hadn't interfered. Maybe I wanted the retribution I would have faced when my mother learned that I had breached the trust between us. I don't know. I can't name that hunger. I only know that I turn my flashlight back on and shine it into the gloom over my head. There's a latch built into the ceiling, an iron ring just big enough that I can slide two fingers through it and pull. At first, it resists me, sealed into place by untold years of neglect. But I'm no longer interested in playing nice with the house. 
I'm in an act-now-regret-later sort of mood, so I just haul against the ring with everything I have, one foot braced against Norma's coats, pinning the dead weasel to the wall. The hatch in the ceiling comes unstuck, and the musk of trapped air that gusts into my face is overwhelming. I stare for a long second at the passage now opened above me. I am in a secret closet. The staircase is directly overhead. This passageway, and wherever it leads, cannot be here. An unexpected emotion twists in my chest. If I didn't know myself any better, I might say it was yearning. I've spent the past day and a half in this empty house, sleeping in Norma's old quilts, drinking whiskey out of cups last touched by her lips, and this is now the closest I've felt to her. This impossible place could have only belonged to my aunt, and of everyone in the family, it could only have been shared with me. I stand on my tiptoes and peer into the hole. The passage is built into the slope of the ceiling, so I can turn my phone's flashlight down its long throat. As it turns out, though, I don't need to. There's already a light at the far end. It's not daylight. It's the yellowed glow of an incandescent bulb. It seems that I am expected. I pocket my phone and shimmy myself upward. Once I'm inside, flat on my stomach, I find that the passage isn't all that long. That dim, steady glow is coming from a room some ten feet ahead. From this angle, I can make out its oaken floorboards. I start to crawl forward, my breaths coming shallow and quick. The hole absolutely reeks of mildew, so I turn my face into the coat's fur collar, huffing in the stale scent of Norma's interred wardrobe. The light in the room beyond doesn't seem to reach into the passage, but I don't need to see where I am to know where I'm going. I try not to focus on the bits of mold and fiberglass amassing under my fingernails. I'm so close to the impossible room now, so close to what Norma has kept hidden from the vultures. I shove myself out of the passage, twisting to get free of its narrow, grimy embrace, and push into the room beyond. As I catch my breath, clear my lungs of that fetid stench, I lay on my back and take stock. The room appears to be an attic, even though I know I'm nowhere near the roof. The walls, lined with exposed beams, slant toward one another as they might under one of the house's gables. From what I can see, the room has no windows, only bare bulbs strung between the beams, casting a dim, unwavering light. I've been here before. This thought possesses me, even though I know it can't be true. The passage to this room hasn't been opened in years, decades probably, so why does it feel so familiar? As I start to roll myself onto my stomach, following the lines of the beams from the ceiling down the floor, it comes to me. It's not that I've been here before. 
It's that I've seen this room before. In fact, I've seen it from this very angle. I hadn't really paid attention to that second pick Hung Daddy had sent, mostly because the man's glorious dick was out of focus. But the wall behind him was in focus, and it's that wall opposite me now, framed by the two beams joined at the ceiling. I'm in the place where the photos were taken. The phone buzzes, but this time I already have it in hand. I knew he would message me right at this moment. I may not understand what he is or what he wants, but I'm starting to know the way he thinks, and this excites me more than I could have anticipated. Hung Daddy has sent two messages, and the app informs me that one of them is a photo. The message comes first. You must pass through the opening. The picture that follows doesn't immediately clarify things. The photographer has foregrounded half of Hung Daddy's face, and even though it's blurry, I can't help but study him. He's bald, with a full, coarse beard, the kind of beard that leaves marks after it has made use of the softest parts of your body. He's staring directly into the camera, and I read him so clearly. He looks into the lens with a want so naked, so forceful, it might be mistaken for rage. But it's not anger. Not exactly. I know how that intensity will translate through his touch. I know what his fingers will feel like around my throat. I know how his grip will tighten when he presses his girth through me, and how my mouth will open, not with a need to breathe, but with a need to taste the sweat raining from his face. I've gotten so hard I can feel my pulse in my dick. I want to unbutton my pants and jerk off right here in the cold, damp musk of this room as he watches me. But Hung Daddy resends the message. You must pass through the opening. A small, useless whimper wells in my throat the sound a dog makes when denied attention. I know what he wants me to do next, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to look at the rest of the picture. I force myself to break his gaze, to study the part of the photo that's in focus. It's the wall again. The resolution isn't great, but even so, I can see the line running across its surface, top to bottom. It's unbroken and jagged, pencil-thin. I look across the room. The deeper I go into this house, the more twisted its interiors become. Even though I'm not on the second floor, I'm looking at the roof's gables. And even though I'm nowhere near the kitchen's infamous load-bearing wall, I'm looking at the crack. How can I possibly... I start this thought, but can't finish it. My fingers are so cold, and the pressure of my erection against my jeans is a needy, unbearable thing. I delete the words and start again, but Hung Daddy replies before I can hit send. He shows me what I already know. You will do what you have to do, pig. I still don't know what he wants from me, but I don't have to. 
It is enough to feel the heft of his desire make a place for itself inside me. I start to crawl. At first, the crack is so distant, barely visible, a hairline shadow bisecting the wall. I put one hand forward and feel the room shift. No, not the room. Something has changed within me. It's like Hung Daddy has sewn balloons into all those minute spaces between my joints, and when I move forward, he purses his lips, sucks a breath into that hairy drum of his chest, and blows. This description isn't right, because it sounds like I'm experiencing something painful. But this isn't pain the way you know it. The change is slow. The room fish-eyes as I move forward, the beams in the periphery of my vision bending into convexity. The far wall only grows nearer and nearer. It approaches even in those times when I am not moving my body. I do, at one point, hang my head to see if I am moving myself. I couldn't quite see my legs. They were so far away, still at the far end of the room but I did see a dark stain on my crotch. I must have come. When I reach the crack in the future, I see that it has changed. I was wrong this whole time, wrong about so many things. Auntie was telling the truth. This is like looking into the Panama Canal, like standing at the edge of some bottomless fissure splitting the earth. I am nothing in its presence. I am dwindling into meaninglessness. As I stretch through the opening, I am so racked with sensation that it is almost impossible to separate one feeling, one thought, from the rest of the flood. But in that instant before I am gone, I realize what the house has given me. The force of desire has raised all uncertainty from inside me. It leaves an emptiness, a newness, that never stops growing. I couldn't stop it even if I wanted to, even if I could want anything at all. Betsy Mortimer Scott pulls up to the house at half past four. In her 23 years in real estate, Betsy has closed more sales than she can rightly recall. She sold split levels to newlyweds, tracts of land to wolf-eyed developers, and oceanfront monstrosities to the unimaginably wealthy. In all this time, Betsy has never, not once, told a prospective buyer that a house has good bones. It is a morbid metaphor. The buyer should never think of the house as a living thing, waiting to be resuscitated by fresh drywall and a gallon of paint. No, a property is a starched canvas, a blank page. The right language is important in making the sale. Betsy reminds herself of this as she steps out of the car, planting her booted feet in the undisturbed layer of snow. If there has ever been a half-living house, a house with bones awaiting reanimation, it is this one. The old colonial sulks at the forest's edge, its siding the same color as the trees that surround it, its windows so lightless, she can't properly tell if the glass is still there. Betsy slings her purse over her shoulder and locks the car doors. 
As she walks toward the front porch, she corrects herself. She'll never sell this place if she lets such thoughts color her perspective. For the right buyer, this house will be charming, a storied New England Gothic. Better yet, a secluded woodland fantasy. Wood stoves crackling through the winter, mulled cider simmering in the kitchen, holly wreaths on every door. Betsy takes the porch stairs two at a time. The right framing is starting to come together. Somewhere in Boston, there is a middle-aged couple dying to move to the country, and this place practically has their name stenciled on the mailbox. Betsy pauses when she comes to the front door. It is open, not wide open, but ajar. This is not unusual given the circumstances. The last person to come here was probably a lawyer's lackey, someone too preoccupied to double-check that they'd locked it behind themselves. Betsy has had only fleeting contact with the family, but even from those brief interactions, she knows that they're not the type to personally attend to the old woman's belongings. They had no real connection to her, no genuine interest in anything other than the will. Hello, Betsy calls as she pulls the door open. Is there anyone here? A spray of snow has swept inside. The house is so cold that the ice sticks to the welcome mat and the hardwood floor. Betsy brushes this away with her boots as she enters. The last thing an old house needs is excess moisture on the floorboards. As Betsy turns to close the door, she sees the lace curtains in the drawing room below, touched by wind. The windows, she finds, are all open. Not just those in the drawing room, but the windows in the dining room and the kitchen and the living room. She could have sworn that the owner had painted these shut years ago, but she must be confusing this with another property. Hello, Betsy repeats after she's closed all the windows and returned to the front hall. She doesn't know why she asks a second time. This house is empty. There is no one here, and it feels in this moment like no one has ever been here. All those screenless windows and open doors, all those banisters rimmed with ice. This, perhaps, is what concerns her most about convincing someone to buy the place. It's this feeling that if she keeps standing in this hallway, she will become part of the house's vast absence. Betsy hikes her purse up higher on her shoulder. Enough of this. She decides she will come back later in the week. The contractor is free on Thursday, and she could use his help in drying all the floors and getting the furnace working again. No point in working alone if she doesn't have to. On her way out, Betsy closes the closet door under the stairs. She remembers to lock the front door as she goes. You do have good bones, she says out loud. It's silly to talk to a house, but there is reassurance in the weight of her own voice in remembering that she is here and that there is work ahead. I'll find a family to love you, she adds, the way you ought to be loved. Betsy Mortimer Scott cranks the heat up in her car and wastes no time getting back on the road into town. The sun sets early this far north. As she drives, the bare trees lining the road cast shadows that reach across the pavement, a tunnel of interlocking fingers. The sun falls away. Betsy flicks her headlights on. Every shadow is erased. <laughs> I hope you're awake now and ready to go house hunting. I know I am. I hope you enjoyed Dick Pig by Ian Munishwa.
read to you by John Allen Nelson and Justine Eyre. Now, go out there and tell all your little real estate friends and twitterers and help spread the word. You realize this one was on the house with the crack, but please consider our many subscription options, and believe me, we would be humbled by your recurring patronage. Nightstand tip. On your nightstand should be the king in yellow. Well, he might not fit on your nightstand, but certainly the audiobook version would. This audiobook version is a Skyboat Media production, read by the incredible Stefan Rudnicki, and falls certainly into the Nightmare Magazine category. H.P. Lovecraft said about it that it really achieves notable heights of cosmic fear, which is exactly what you want on your nightstand before you go to sleep. You can get your copy on our website at www.skyboatmedia.com. Nightmare Magazine is edited by Wendy Wagner. This podcast is copyright 2022 by Adamant Press. This story was produced by Skyboat Media, the premier recording team on the West Coast, who now offers the special TARDIS isolation booth, which has no visible cracks in it thus far, to keep your narrator safe and distanced during production. Skyboat is headed by Grammy and Audie winners Stefan Rudnicki and moi. You can get The King in Yellow and all of our productions at skyboatmedia.com. The exquisite post-production is done by Hour of the Wolf fame superstar Jim Freund. Thanks for nightmaring with us. I'm the cure for your nightmares, and I promise never to wake you up, even if I see a crack in the ceiling. From all of us here, good Nightmare Magazine. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.